You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast, and I am coming to you from Southern California. This is the first show that I'm recording from my new office. Now, before I get into stuff, though, I do want to, as usual, take you back to wealthformula.com and remind you that you can get a free copy of Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which is my Amazon bestseller. You can get that on Amazon or you can go to wealthformula.com and download it for free in PDF format. Also, you can simply get a copy of that book by texting 44222 and typing Wealth Formula, one word. Don't let the autocorrect screw you up. Again, that's 44222, Wealth Formula, one word. Obviously, there's a number of downloads there that you can get. Now, as I mentioned, I have arrived in Southern California from my new office from downtown Santa Barbara. And this is the first time in Wealth Formula podcast history that this is coming from somewhere that is not part of my own home. Used to be from my guest room. Now, this is a specific office for this purpose. Now, this time that I've had away from the show, and it's been about three weeks, I think, since I've recorded maybe, has given me some time to reflect And I do have a lot to say to you myself, and sometimes the interview format does not allow me to do that. So I have decided that I will do more podcasts, not all, but I'll certainly do more podcasts in a format where you can hear from me, myself, a little bit more sort of in soliloquy format. And during these episodes, what I'm hoping to share with you are some of my thoughts, not only on financial matters, but also on mindset, which I think is a big deal. One of the biggest barriers to financial and what I would call holistic wealth is mindset. Our mindset is in turn influenced heavily by what we believe. So in this episode today, my inaugural Santa Barbara Wealth Formula podcast, I will talk to you about what I believe our educational system and conventional wisdom combined have done in the way of creating what I would call artificial truths, you know, truths in quotation marks in our lives, and how that might actually be destructive to the way we deal with with money. So when we come back, you will hear from me again, and I'm going to call this Deconstructing Deconstructive Belief Systems. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So today I want to talk to you a little bit about belief systems. Now, we are the product of many variables, including religion, our upbringing, our personal experiences. And as a culture, however, there are certain influences that the vast majority of us share. And, you know, these things that we share, they can be very useful for society, but it can also be limiting. Now, let's talk about the educational system, because this is the institutional system that is our biggest collective influence. I think few people would argue that because we're all going through it, right? I mean, especially if you're living in the Western world. In our educational system in the U.S., and I've talked about this before, is a remnant of something of the Industrial Revolution. In fact, it was borrowed from the Prussians in the early 1840s and brought over to the U.S. by a guy named Horace Mann. Now, that may explain why there are so many schools called Horace Mann. At any rate, this educational system was then sort of finalized in 1892 by a committee that was known as the Committee of Ten. 
and they were at Harvard. And they standardized this whole entire idea of, you know, our public school curriculum and the way it's structured into 12 years. And of course, divided into grades one through 12 and decided what went into each grade. For example, obviously you might remember from high school, there was a year you took algebra, you took geometry. Well, these guys decided all of that. And this, of course, was pretty revolutionary. I mean, it's an extremely efficient means of public education. And frankly, for 120 years ago or so, this was very forward-looking. Unfortunately, it hasn't changed much in about 120 years. That makes it so maybe it's a little bit outdated. Now, what they came up with, as we know, is this whole thing that they call the age-based cohort system, basically the whole you know kindergarten through 12th grade thing. And if you look at it, and it sort of reminds you of the Industrial Revolution, right? It's sort of like an assembly line of information. And you can literally imagine the child sort of moving along this assembly line. And in, you know, every new station, they stay there for a year and they do that for 12 years. And at each station, the kid sort of gets doused in a bucket of prepackaged information that is deemed appropriate for that grade. So, you know, geometry, algebra, whatever else that each year typically they have. And the idea is at the end of the 12 years, you have this sort of finished product. Of course, you know, with that assembly line model, some people fall off the assembly line and they never make it to the end. And then, of course, some final products have flaws. You know, they don't all come out looking great. But then the finest of products get a pat on the back and then they get shipped off, you know, to a new factory. That new factory is meant to polish them up a little bit. And what I mean by that, of course, is people who go on to college and graduate school. Of course, these are the people. These are you, you know, the successful students, the ones who go on to college and graduate school for a little extra polish. And these are the people, the people who succeed in that system that typically go on to become higher earning professionals. Now, the people who are most successful in this school system, people like you and me, are those who excel at doing exactly as they're told and absorbing the information they're fed most efficiently. We're the ones who are the best at this. People like me, people like you, the, you know, the successful good students were constantly being given positive feedback during school. And society commends us for not failing, for consistent success. And that sort of turns us into sort of a pack of Pavlovian dogs. And what we do is we just thrive on this positive feedback of teachers commending us for mastering whatever they spoon feed us. It's almost addictive, right? We, we love it. The problem with this kind of school system, well, there's many problems, but you don't get points for trial and error or for trying to teach yourself things outside of the curriculum. That's not going to get you ahead. Unfortunately, the reality is that in the real world, trying to teach yourself things and doing trial and error, that's the most natural way of learning. And there are other flaws in the system. After all, what happens when this sort of prepackaged information that we're talking about is wrong or it omits something? Let's say it's like, you know, financial education. There isn't a lot of financial. And if there was, it, it might be wrong anyway. It probably would be. It's very hard for people who are conditioned in this environment at, you know, being spoon fed information and thriving on just regurgitating whatever, you know, is given to us. It's very hard for many of us to learn things on our own and begin doing so after so many years of this training. 
And I call that whole idea the high paid professional paradox. Again, you do everything right in school, you get accolades, you get titles, you get called doctor or attorney or whatever, but we don't really have a clue. Many of us don't have a clue on how to teach ourselves anything outside of the quote unquote curriculum. And it also makes many of us incredibly scared of failure, which is, again, the most natural way of learning in the world. So without a curriculum to master, a lot of us highly successful professionals just simply substitute learning with relying on what we call conventional wisdom. Now, conventional wisdom is generally not a terrible thing. I mean, conventional wisdom is a general rule is an accepted belief or an opinion or judgment about a particular matter. Sounds like a curriculum, right? I mean, it's a accepted belief or opinion or judgment. It's a curriculum. You got to learn it. And again, like I said, conventional wisdom is not always bad. You shouldn't be swimming outside, you know, when there's an electric storm or something. That's good advice. And conventional wisdom can be a really good time saver as well. But conventional wisdom can also be institutionalized stupidity. For example, there have been times in this world where we believe that the world is flat, that the sun revolves around the earth, or that, take this one, this one's more recent, following the food pyramid will keep you healthy. Now, you remember what I'm talking about. So I remember back in grade school, and I think this was fifth grade, they always had this pyramid on the wall, and then you'd have the broad end of the pyramid, the bottom of it, you'd have like bread, cereal, rice, pasta, all that stuff. And that was supposed to be the stuff that you're supposed to eat the most of. And at the end, at the very top, of course, you had like, you know, fat and, and that sort of thing. In fact, I remember my fifth grade teacher looking at this thing and asking the class what they thought the, you know, most perfect food might be. And we all took our shot, you know, and took a chance at it. And then a fifth grade teacher told the class that the perfect food was actually pizza because the pizza had, you know, mostly bread and stuff like that. And then it had a little bit of, you know, vegetables, meat, so on and so forth. Anyway, we know how uh, that conventional wisdom turned out. Of course, some of you probably don't know too much about this, but let me tell you about it. As it turned out, now this came out fairly recently, and this is real. So the sugar industry paid scientists in the 1960s to play down the link between sugar and heart disease. Like I said, folks, this is not fake news or alternative facts. We have plenty of those going on these days. That's not what I'm doing. This is real published stuff. As it turned out, the Sugar Research Foundation paid Harvard scientists at the time to downplay the role of sugar in heart disease. And they published this article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1967, which really shaped a lot of the ideas behind that food pyramid. Well, one of those Harvard researchers who got paid off went on to become the head of nutrition at the United States Department of Agriculture and drafted to the forerunner of the actual dietary guidelines in 1977. And of course, that led to the food pyramid. Okay, and the food pyramid encouraged Americans for decades to reduce their fat intake and instead consume low-fat, high-sugar foods instead. And of course, what has that led to? Well, for one thing, an obesity epidemic in the U.S. I just cut out sugar from my diet, amongst other things, and I just lost a bunch of weight. Listen, most scientists and physicians today, we tend to agree that carbohydrates in the form of simple sugars, starches, etc., are actually the real evil 
And they shouldn't be at the base of the food pyramid at all. I mean, these are the things that cause diabetes and inflammation, et cetera. It's terrible. So images of bread, rice, fruit, juice, and potatoes at the bottom of the food pyramid is downright dangerous. So what am I saying here? Well, that was conventional wisdom again, right? So conventional wisdom can be influenced by special interests. Surprise, surprise, right? And conventional wisdom can actually be dangerous. What else is conventional wisdom? Well, let's bring it back home to what we like to talk about on this show a lot. How about this one? Get a good job. Invest for the long run in a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Can you think of any special interests who might want you to believe in this conventional wisdom? Let's break it down. How about get a good job? Well, we talked about where the you know educational system comes from. But at the end of the day, remember also that the educational systems was there first and foremost to create a workforce for the titans of industry. This was an educational system to train employees, not entrepreneurs, folks. Okay, how about invest for the long run? What does that mean? It means never mind the wild fluctuations of the equity markets. Trust the equity markets. Expect to lose money. After all, the markets are like nature, right? You can't blame them when they hurt you. I mean, they're like wild animals. How about invest in a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds? Who would want you to do that? Well, who creates the markets? Who creates mutual funds and other financial products? Who profits from your money when you invest in the markets? Well, you know what I'm going to say. It's Wall Street, right? It's Wall Street. Wall Street wants you to think of the equity markets as a part of life, their nature, and they want you to think it's conventional wisdom. You're just supposed to stick with them no matter what. And Wall Street and, of course, the wealth advisors. And the wealth advisors are nothing more than the minions of Wall Street. You know, there's a quote, and it is, and this is in my book, too. Each day, each month, each year, one more, 1,000 more. A million more investors will gradually learn the foolishness of this system and will start looking after themselves. Who do you think that quote's from? Well, you would think it would be from Buck Joffrey, but no, it was actually from John Bogle, who is former CEO of the Vanguard Group. So let's go back to more conventional wisdom. How about this? Work until you're 65, then retire. At that point, you'll finally get a chance to live the life you want to live. You move to Florida, play golf. All you have to do to do this, all you have to do is to work hard, invest in the long run in a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds that your wealth advisor will guide you on. And what will they guide you on? Because they have their own conventional wisdom, right? Drives me crazy, these financial advisors. They're always talking about their buckets and you have your growth bucket. You have this bucket, you have that bucket. But it's this nebulous bucket. Nobody knows what's in it. And they're just based on, again, just assumptions and conventional wisdom that people are fed and they think they're supposed to believe it. Let's talk about some of these retirement assumptions. Your money will grow at 7% per year. Okay, really? Inflation will be 2% per year. Really? How are we going to pay down that $20 trillion debt? We're going to erode it. We're going to erode it. And the only way we do that is by increasing inflation to far more than 2% per year. How about Social Security will continue to be solvent decades from now? Well, they don't come out necessarily and say that, but they assume that, right? And we know Social Security is broke. How about withdrawing 4% savings per year to live on? 
after retirement will allow your money to outlive you. Again, it's just an assumption, right? And it's because they're saying that you need to just withdraw 4% per year and that's what the rules are. That's the ground rule. If you do that, you'll be fine. Your money will then outlive you and you won't die broke. Well, there's lots of problems with that, of course. I mean, how much money is in there in the first place? I mean, do you really think you're going to get 7% per year and that inflation is going to be 2% per year? And what about life expectancy, right? I mean, life expectancy will go up, folks. I mean, people who are born now are probably going to have life expectancy in the 100 range. So even those of us who are, you know, in our 30s and 40s, et cetera, we're going to collectively live longer than the generation that is currently in their 80s. So the idea that life expectancy is not going to change in the next 30 to 40 years, again, they're not saying that explicitly, but that's what conventional wisdom is leading you to believe because of this model that's supposed to work. So let's go back to that 7% per year we talked about, right? Because the money has to grow at 7% per year. Now, we know that most retirement accounts are invested heavily in mutual funds. And according to Forbes, the average mutual fund fee comes out to about 3.5%. So if you start with an investment of, say, $1,000, you get hit with fees right away, right? So really, when you get to the starting line, you're actually at $965. So 7% growth on this leaves you with, well, let's see, about a... 3.25% increase in your money. And again, remember, those fees happen every year. And this shouldn't be a surprise, right? Because again, most people have their 401ks and IRAs or whatever heavily invested in mutual funds because that's what they're supposed to do. But when you hear this number about 7% or 10% from your uh, investment advisors, but in reality, the average mutual fund growth over the last three decades is somewhere between 3 and 4%, just like our calculations just suggested it might be. Now, how long would it take you to double your investments at 3.5% per year? Well, with a rule of 72, which is 72 divided by the annual rate of return, that would be 20.5 years. And remember, this is just doubling your money, and you have to live on this money for the rest of your life and you're allowed to take out 4% per year. It's not enough, folks. Whether you like it or not, a generation of people are going to die broke. And I'm not talking about people who are just right now in the middle class. I'm talking about highly paid professionals who are relying on this system to bring them you know, into their retirement years. So I know some of you are out there and you're still not convinced and you're saying, listen, Buck, I know what you're saying about these mutual funds and I'm going to minimize my fees and, and just buy a bunch of Vanguard ETFs and, uh, you know, I'll be fine. Well, maybe. I mean, but how did you feel in 2008 when everything hit the fan? Did you like that feeling? Did you like that fear and uncertainty? I mean, most of us listening to this show, we're young enough to have that kind of time to rebound after something like that. But what if you were just about to retire? And that happened. You know, when that happened, everything was horrible. And that was nearly a decade ago. And interest rates now, they're still at less than 1%. And during this time, we've been at zero for most of it. Low interest rates are supposed to energize an economy. And we've had like zero interest rates, which is unparalleled in history. And despite that, you know, what do we have to show for it? Sure, we've got the third longest period of GDP growth. We also have the most sluggish GDP growth in history during a non-recessionary period. 
And the majority of that money that is being made is really being made by the financial industry and Wall Street. And again, the U.S. national debt is around $20 trillion. Folks, between 1775 and 2000, it was only $5 trillion, $5 trillion. And then less than two decades, we've quadrupled our debt compared to the previous 225 years of our history. The only way we can catch up is by some level of hyperinflation, because what does inflation do? It erodes debt. Okay, and then now there's that crowd out there that's saying, but wait, wait, Buck, the Dow is at record highs. I don't want to miss this. I mean, I've even had to talk my dad out of this. It's just crazy. I can't believe this guy got reamed in the dot-com bubble, and now he was like, well, look at everybody's making so much money in this. Well, listen, corporate earnings have been flat for three years despite this, despite the Dow going up, what, I think it was like 25, 30%. And Janet Yellen recently called the price-to-earnings ratios rich. What does that remind you of? Reminds me of Alan Greenspan, who back right before the dot-com bubble burst, he called it irrational exuberance. And you remember what happened right after that huge, huge crash. But meanwhile, again, conventional wisdom, the wealth managers tell you to keep doing the same thing. Why? Well, they've got no skin in the game. They make money whether you win or lose. And again, folks, I just want to reiterate something which is a mantra for me and for this show. And I want you to remember that Wall Street is there to take your money, not to make you money. We live in unparalleled financial times. There is nothing conventional about it. If you want to not only survive, but thrive, you're going to need to change your own belief systems. You need to take financial matters into your own hands, and you will need to become increasingly self-reliant with your personal finance. And to do this, you'll need to educate yourself. You're going to have to educate yourself on the way wealthy people think. And that's a lot of what we do on this show, right? I don't want you to be led by the Pied Piper down into the Wall Street abyss, just like the rest of them. And that's really the purpose of this show. So my call to action to you this week is simply to reflect. What is it that you believe? Why do you believe it? I'm talking about, you know, mostly money stuff. I mean, you may have some other issues in your life that you need to reexamine as well. I think there is plenty of those always out there. But really, what's keeping you from carrying out some of these things that obviously, if you're listening to this show, you buy into? I mean, is there something within you that is just telling you that what you're doing is wrong? Well, that something is conventional wisdom. And for whatever reason, you think those things are true and you're not trusting your own head. All right. So that is the call to action for the week. And I am going to call it a week myself. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off until next week. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.